Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. A recent BMJ investigation found that violent incidents of GP practices have doubled in the last five years. With rising demand for healthcare, too few GPs, a critical media, and the psychosocial assaults of rising inflation and cost of living, it's hardly surprising. But as well as the physical and emotional harm of these attacks each time a GP is threatened, intimidated, or physically attacked, this can also mean another GP needing to take time off or deciding they've had enough. So what's going on? And is there anything we can do about it? Today, we hear from the BMJ journalist who broke the story, a GP who's been affected, and two experts in de-escalation techniques. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And I'm joined, as usual, by Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor, a GP in New Zealand, and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And um, I want to talk about uh, something that's coming up in your your section of the BMJ, because I'm very excited to read it. Um, We have a front page on menopause. Can you tell us maybe about that, just as a random thing to start us off? Sure, absolutely. Well, (laughs) menopause has been in the news for a number of reasons lately, ranging from a greater appreciation of the importance of accommodating menopausal symptoms in the workplace to, in the UK, a shortage of HRT. This analysis paper by Martha Hickey and colleagues, Martha's based in Melbourne, actually focuses on the medicalization of menopause and argues that the understanding and kind of cultural conceptions of menopause can actually influence the severity and type of symptoms that women experience. Um, And they present some really interesting data to that effect. And the whole premise is that setting women up with more information and positive expectations might actually make their experience of menopause better. So a completely random thing to start us off on, but I, I saw that that was coming up soon in, in the journal, so I thought... Yeah, it's great. Everyone should have a read. We've also got with us uh, Gareth uh, back again for the third time uh, because he's uh, got this great story to tell us about. Hi, hi, Gareth. Hi, Tom. I'm a member of the BMJ's news team. And um, yes, I produced a story last week that uh, has caught yeah. a few people's attention. So I'd heard anecdotally a lot over the last kind of six months to a year lots of gps have been telling me we've been experiencing uh assaults abuse um criminal damage various kind of forms of abuse really if you want to sort of term it as that um at work um from patients who essentially frustrations have boiled over um and i've had lots of people tell me that this is a big issue what we didn't have before is kind of data to to show whether or not this is something that's always been the case or whether it's got worse or whether, you know, it, we didn't have the data. Um, just as an aside, the, the part of the reason we don't have the data is the NHS staff survey asks people, um, staff in hospitals every year to report whether they've experienced violence attacks. Um, so we kind of have a measure from that of how prevalent it is in hospitals and other parts of the NHS, but that data doesn't cover GP practices um, because of their independent contractor status. So there was a bit of a gap in in the in the data, I suppose. In, in, and so what I decided to do is ask police forces um, around the UK, I think yeah. there are 45 police forces. So I asked all of them, sent freedom of information requests, asking for records of all crimes that they recorded at GP surgeries and primary care centres, health centres, over the last five years. Um, And the reason I did that is because I wanted to look at the trends. And it showed very, very clearly that incidents of violence have increased substantially over that time. I mean, they've almost doubled. um, And I guess the other thing to bear in mind is that these are the most serious incidents, the ones that sort of reach the stage of actually being recorded by police. Um, I think somebody that I spoke to for the the written piece said it was the tip of the iceberg, and that's absolutely right, really. I mean, it, I think lots of practices get this on a far more sort of low-level basis, almost on a sort of daily or weekly basis. But I suppose what this data did show, it, it was kind of a, it's a good indicator of the fact that 
that you know the volume of incidents seems to be rising and that, that's what the police data show anyway so um and yeah the the question mm. now is sort of what do we well sort of hey how do we understand why it's happening and b what could we potentially do to sort of um mm. try and fix mm. this really mm. well, well we'll come on to, to some of this in, in a moment um jenny i always like to come to you to tell us like the global view not that you, you necessarily know everything about but do you think this seems like a very uk focused problem listening in from new zealand I definitely don't think this is a UK only problem. I think we've seen trends from a number of places, including the US. Um, and we've also reported on situations um, in parts of Asia with rising incidents of threats and harassment and violence against um, physicians. There were some recent surveys from the United States indicating that at least a quarter of U.S. physicians responding to the surveys had experienced attacks or harassment, um, not only in person, but also on social media. Um, Sometimes verbal abuse extended to death threats. And there was a recent uh, kind of response to anti-racism in Boston just a couple of months ago, uh, where a kind of a crowd assembled and handed out threatening leaflets regarding a couple of physicians there. So definitely not isolated to the UK. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we've got an interview with one of the people you spoke to, Gareth, for for your investigation. Um, It's probably a good time to to hear that now, and then we can talk a bit more about those, well, what what does this mean and, and where do we go from here? So uh, actually, we were all busy on the day that the, the interviewee was available. This is Adam Janger, who's a GP in the northwest of England, near where I grew up. Uh, but our, our producer, Duncan Jarvis, um, kindly stepped in to, to have a chat with him. And that'll be coming up after this message from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity... You need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. So let's go back to that interview with Adam Janjo. My name is Adam Danjua. I'm a GP in Fleetwood, which is um, a small town on the Fylde coast in Lancashire. Um, I've been a GP now for uh, just over 13 years, um, and I've worked in the NHS for over 17 years. Um, uh, as a side thing, I also uh, i am the clinical chair of the Fylde and Wire Clinical Commissioning Group um, for the remainder of this month until uh, CCGs cease to be on the 1st of July. So... That um, investigation that we've done, you responded to that, and I've seen you talking in the media, and I'm sure some of our our listeners have as well. But um, could you sort of tell us about the the violence that you've experienced as as a GP or as a practice? Yeah, I mean, I like I said on uh, on the media briefings as well. I've I've never known it to be this bad. Um, I think, unfortunately, um, we have had instances where we've had uh, interactions, altercations with patients over uh, several years. Uh, it's been going on, but I've never known the frequency to be as bad as it's been over the past two years. In my own practice, if I was to say that, um, you know, three years ago we'd probably get maybe 
two irate patients that you know you'd had to warn about the zero tolerance policy. Um, currently, um, in the past week, I've seen maybe uh, fifteen instances. So we're looking at a at a, at a fivefold increase of 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 abuse, and I think that kind of coincides perhaps with what people have found sort of in in the BMA survey and things as well. I mean, as you as you know, I've uh, and and was mentioned in the BMJ article. I've I've been um, sort of uh, threatened to be stabbed personally. I think uh, the the one that sticks out the most was um, the fact that I didn't even bother reporting the last one when I was shoved in the chest. Um, but then was told that in order to remove the patient um, on that day, we had to call and have a police log number. Uh, so it was essentially just a, an exercise just to get a log number. They asked, do you want to press charges? I said, no. Um, uh, so it, it's it's a strange situation where every day has become sort of the norm of getting abused that at times when you see patients um, and they're actually nice to you, you have this hostage syndrome uh, where you're sort of almost in tears because you think, oh, gosh, this person has been so nice to me. And and if you go back five years, that used to be the norm. You used to be getting cards from patients, you know, saying thank you for, for the care you've provided. Now that's a rarity. Um, now we expect complaints in place of those cards. Um, and that's how the dynamic has shifted, unfortunately. Has how you've dealt with um, these situations changed over over those last five years as well? I think um, when they were few and far between, you used to have a lot more patience um, with how you dealt with things. Um, so you could perhaps see the the other perspective, the patient side to things. You know, they, they might be angry, they might be frustrated. They've fallen through the cracks somewhere. Somebody has let them down. And because you uh, or everyone who works in primary care is the front-facing side of the NHS, um, we get the brunt of it. But as they're becoming more frequent, my resilience to dealing with these patients or the, the public that abuse you um, has, has worn thin. Um, and I think, I, I think uh, personally, I think there's only so much of me that I can give. Um, um, so uh, to answer the question, I think I'm less um, able to sort of forgive when I get abused now, um, and I don't think I deserve it, and I certainly don't think any of my colleagues do either. Talking about colleagues, how are your colleagues feeling about this, and, and do they experience the same things you do? I want us to spare a thought for reception staff, the people that are really on the front line. Um, they're having to face it. You know, every third call is, is, is abusive, intimidatory language, derogatory stuff being said to them. Uh, and And most of them are okay with it, but um, it's a vicious cycle. People don't want to do the job uh, of a receptionist. Uh, I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't. We have a huge turnover, and uh, not just my practice. It's uh, many, many practices in the area are constantly looking for good staff. Um, the reason given for most people leaving is that they just can't take the abuse. Um, I've, I've heard uh, of staff members having panic attacks before coming into work. Uh, and having to sort of really psych themselves up to to come in and just get through the day. Lots of people want to go part-time because they think maybe they can manage the abuse better if they have a day or two off. Um, but the real problems start when people go on holiday and they reassess uh, what's important to them. And then they come back and kind of go, well, I was away and I didn't get any abuse. And I felt really good. I could smile with my kids. I could uh, laugh with my husband, um, you know. And and now when I come home, I'm dead inside because I'm having to deal with all sorts of rubbish that, you know, I don't deserve and that I shouldn't be getting. And there's no way we can protect them. No, it sounds, it sounds pretty awful. Um, back to you. I wonder what these experiences do to your, your sense of being a GP. Does it affect the way you interact with patients? It does, to a certain extent. Um, I'll always judge what's in front of me, and each patient interaction is, is sort of um, a, a unique uh, encounter. So I don't necessarily let it, let it make me bitter, but it does make me more cautious about trusting people, um, you know, because what we do as GPs, and, and this is something I don't think the public realizes, is we build connections with people, and we go the extra mile to try and sort of accommodate people. We try and help them. And then when you get your hand sort of burnt, um, it makes us less trusting. 
And I think by default, then that makes us less good, less effective as GPs. So I would imagine if you ask me this question 20 years uh, from now, if I'm about to retire, if I'm lasting, if I'm able to last that long, um, I'd probably be a very cynical person that sort of is only there just so that I can get to my pension aid and then just leave. Um, and that's a sad way to be because I didn't become a GP because I wanted to just work um, and then come home and, and then just try and retire at some stage earlier than, I, uh, than I'm able to. I wanted to do it because I like the patient interactions. Um, but it's become quite toxic um, of, of late, the last two years in particular. These days, when an incident does happen, I mean, what do you do? Who do you talk to? Who do you try and, and I don't know, report things to or, or try and get support from? Yeah, it's it's a bit difficult when when you're sort of uh, one of the the managing partners in the practice because um, you you will have colleagues, but they'll be busy with patients. I mean, literally, we get maybe ten or fifteen minutes during the day when you can take a breather. And personally, the way I think is, I don't want to be piling on to their mental anguishes of of the stuff that they're having to face day to day. Um, I usually come and sort of uh, use my practice manager as an uh, sort of agony on to just, you know, say this has happened and um, she'll sort of obviously be, you know, sympathetic and say, oh, that's awful uh, and things. But she's not shocked anymore. Uh, none of us are. If I was to say, oh, this person pushed me, it's it's sort of become a thing where, OK, well, are you OK? Yes. Well, let's move on um, because it happened yesterday and uh, it'll happen tomorrow again. Um, so we've become so used to this sort of abuse um, that it's just a thing that happens, uh, uh, you know, just as much as we open the doors to the surgery in the morning, we will expect abuse at some stage during the day. Thanks to Adam there for, for being so open about that. It was um, quite shocking, wasn't it? I, I lots there, which um, which just sounds horrible and yeah, unacceptable, really, doesn't it? Um, Gareth, is, is that? I guess that that is one of the case studies in your your story. This isn't a one-off thing, is it? Yeah, unfortunately not. And um, yeah, it really hits home sort of hearing Adam talk in more detail there about sort of the impact on him and his staff. And I think this this the, the, the really important point that this is so, so self-defeating. I mean, obviously there are sort of underlying reasons why sort of people behave in this way towards healthcare professionals. But, you know, if one of them is that they're struggling to access care, then behaving in this way quite apart from the fact that it's completely unacceptable and very upsetting for the the staff, it's also more likely to drive them away from their job or at least sort of to reduce their hours, or uh, which will only sort of compound this uh, difficulty in accessing care. So it's a really, it's a sort of, yeah, it's a vicious circle really, isn't it? And um, another sort of reason why it, it really needs mm. kind of, I was struck by how it was almost reduce it kind of normalized, wasn't it? Which is a very sad place to be in. in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I I think what resonated most strongly with me was this idea that, similar to what you're saying about normalization, is it becomes so much part of the part of what general practice is and what it means to you that it's only when you go on vacation that you kind of realize in some ways that that, you know, that that is making you obviously unhappy or that it's contributing to unhappiness at work. And just thinking how it's kind of a slippery slope going from, you know, approaching patient care and wanting to help people and wanting to try to make it better and being used to ha people having problems dealing with complaints because that's bound to happen during practice and then kind of slipping towards these outright kind of threats or altogether violent acts. 
it's kind of like, at what point do we say, hang on, like you can't go there. Do you know what I mean? Um, obviously outright violence isn't okay, but it's, I, I think there are a lot of great zones there. Yeah. One thing that I make, I think of because, because GP, the GP kind of cottage industry, you know, with small organizations, not that many, you know, not that many staff compared to hospitals, et cetera. And therefore there's a lot of variety, isn't there, in terms of how you approach this in your little community. And, you know, there's practices you have to post this up everywhere, zero, zero tolerance and any, any sort of behavior is you just get removed from the list. Um, and I think there are others who take a different approach that, and I'm not sure, maybe I, I'm, I should be aware that there is this stuff out there, but I, I don't know about it. But Gareth, did you come across, you know, from the Royal Colleges, from the police, from the NHS, is there like policies and like, you know, operating procedures out there that we should all be following or do they just not really exist? I think they there have been some sort of efforts to to put some of these policies and procedures in place but it i think there's still a way to go i mean uh, the nhs has the um you know things like the violent patient scheme and the, the department of health also mentioned um sort of increased security measures but um i don't know sort of how widespread these security measures mm-hmm. are so it talked about having sort of things like cctv panic buttons you know that r- rolled out across gp surgeries but I mean, to my knowledge, I don't think that every practice has these. Um, I don't know whether your practice has them, Tom, but um and yeah, it obviously they're sort of um sort of protection measures, but I guess there's also kind of measures, more long-term things that need to be done to kind of try and prevent it rather than just sort of tackle it when it happens as well. So there's yeah, kind of yeah, I, I wonder about the two sides to it, role, isn't there really? You know, can they be more if more proactive in if you contacted them and said that we're getting you know on a day-to-day basis we we're being physically abused and and or threatened then um yeah i mean you'd certainly like to think that they could respond to that but uh, i some of the sort of um conversations i had as as part of this piece people were saying you know that we've called the police and that sometimes they're very responsive other times they're not uh you know i guess they're stretched as well in that and it, it, it would depend on the context and the situation or you know how had they assessed the, the incident as well so do yeah, you, did it, you get a sense of you know difficult. how many people really do even kind of raise a flag to this and report things like this happening because if violence being normalized how many people actually report these kinds of things and i'm thinking in particular of the high background levels of kind of racist xenophobic white supremacist neo-nazi anti-semitic abuse that kind of happens to gps who fall into any one of those categories and if you know if some of us as white doctors are saying that this happens or we can become normalized to this kind of thing. What about those people who already have kind of higher levels of abuse and harassment on those grounds? I think that's yeah a very good question. And I guess overall, the sense that I got from talking to people for this piece is that there are lots and there are so many incidents that go unreported. And I guess it tends to, this may not be the case across the board, but certainly for the sort of people that, that I spoke to, they tended to say, you know, it would have to reach a certain level of severity before they would consider getting the police involved because there's often a lot of bureaucracy and um, extra sort of paperwork and things. And, you know, cases are not always dealt with quickly. So I think there's so much that goes under that bar that is nevertheless unacceptable and really sort of quite traumatizing for the the -hmm. doctors and the staff involved so I think that's yeah a a real concern and I guess one of the one of the things that my data did show was that harassment is one sort of subcategory of violence if you like that has really risen so much in the UK and from what you said earlier Jenny it sounds like 
you know that that it's not just the UK that that trend is sort yeah. of. Um, uh, I, I suppose we should itself. we should definitely spare a lot of thoughts for for the reception staff here because, as ever, you know, on the front line, get all the all the abuse, and we see this all the time, don't we? The vile people being very vile, I think, to the reception staff, and they come in and see you, and you know, it's like you know, bottom of the milk situation, uh, and that's very much at the one end of the spectrum, isn't it? And then, mm. yeah, so it's such a hard job, and um, it seems to get so little airtime. Absolutely. And struggling with healthcare staff retention and workforce issues across the board. I mean, I think we talk a lot about GP shortages, but definitely, and speaking from a New Zealand context, there's a national crisis of nurse shortages and other healthcare support staff, including, as you say, Tom, reception staff and people on the front line who often have to face people who are angry and um violent mm. yeah and then we um I suppose the other thing we we could should just mention from from adam's uh interview there was that he talked about feeling dead inside which is you know horrible horrible way to feel isn't it and um yeah and 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 yeah, when we lose that empathy or, you know, times where we we, we struggle to empathise and trust our patients, you know, it's a two-way thing, isn't it? It's not just about the patient trusting us. If, if, if the doctor can't trust the patient, then that, that relationship isn't working either, is it? So um, it's kind of all kind of has these knock-on effects totally. in, in so many different areas. Totally. I mean, if you're, if you're um, scared or if you're, I don't know, resentful or angry or sad or any of those things, it's going to mm. affect the kind of extent to which you can be empathetic, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, Gareth, um, can you kind of end up, end this little section on any kind of <laughs> positive note? Is there, Has there been a good reaction to this that you think might help to, to solve some of these things? Or, or, I mean, my guess is that a lot of this is about the problems, broader problems in society and healthcare and Yeah, unfortunately, Tom, I think, I mean, uh, the, the reaction to the story has been positive in the sense that people are talking about it now. And, um, you know, it's, I guess, hopefully articles like mine will raise awareness of the fact that this is a big issue. It needs tackling. But as you say, there are, yeah, underlying societal issues that are responsible for some of this. And the other thing is, that you know, the shortage of staff is something that Oh, you know, the shortage of doctors is something that's not easy to solve quickly. Um, hopefully, it will focus the minds, things like this, you know, amongst people who can try and make a difference to that in terms of, I guess, recruitment and retention. But, um, you know, if you're hearing stories about doctors and staff leaving because of this kind of thing, then you'd hope that those in charge would really go all out to sort of try and put policies in place to to stop this happening very difficult to do but um i think it's a positive thing that it's being talked about and that, that and hopefully now that we have these numbers as well that it, it's sort of um it's not disputable you know when you hear people say things anecdotally there's always the option if you choose to sort of go down that route of saying, well, you know, this is just a few stories. It's not that bad. But actually, if you've got data showing that it is that bad, then it's not yep. so easy for sort of the policymakers to bat it back and say, yeah, you're, yep. ma you're making a fuss over something yeah. that's not so, a big deal. Um, it clearly Gareth, we're going to let you go because you've got more stories to to find. And, you know, you're, you're, I'm sure you're, you're, the news desk phone is, uh, is off the hook. Phone, phones to hit. Oh, no, I just yes. people like, <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Do you like and, to hear from people Jim, if yeah. they think they've got a story? Is that like the kind of thing you'd want to? Absolutely. Yes, we are always happy to hear from any listeners, readers, audience. Um, um, you can contact us um, email, Twitter, telephone, Excellent. all the all the different forms of communication. Um, Thanks, thanks you know, for we, having me on. Yeah, anyway, we, we always like to hear from oh, people. Great. Thank you for, for coming. And we'll see you again. Take care. Thanks, Kara. Um, that was pretty depressing. Um, what do you think GPs can do about 
this? Like, is there some, is there some evidence-based strategy that we can try not only to keep ourselves safe, but to preserve relationships yeah. with our patients? Well, that is exactly what I was thinking of with this episode, because you know we like to have a second second half to it and something a bit different sometimes. Um, and I was thinking about when you're in those situations with the patient and you can kind of sense that this is somebody who's upset or well, upset, maybe angry or getting, mm. getting early stages of agitation and um, um, what, what you should do in that situation. I think we've all learned just from experience kind of like what to do and what not to do or maybe like, that's the kind of GP in us, like, like what, what we do. But mm. um, but I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to some people who who do this kind of for a living. And um, it made me, took me back to my uh, psychiatry SHO job in an inpatient ward where they, they de-escalate on a, on a daily basis, don't they, on, in, in, some, in some cases. Um, mm. so, I, so I reached out to some experts in de-escalation. Uh, I think I want to say before we go into that, you know, I definitely don't want to be listeners to think that uh, there's any um, in- intention to sort of stigmatise those with mental health difficulties as, as being perhaps more likely to, to mm. become angry or, or violent. Um, and, and as well, mm-hmm. you know, of course, the answer to this isn't that we all get better at de-escalation, that the answers are broader and bigger. And as we've been talking, this is about the problems in society and um and the way the system is mm. isn't working very well. No, yeah, for sure. I th- I think that's a really important point because it's it's not the case that somebody carrying a mental health diagnosis is necessarily going to be more likely to submit a threat or become violent or angry. I mean, a, a lot of times it's people who are struggling for other reasons as you said. And so I think it's important to kind of keep that background thinking in mind that this is in many ways building upon, you know, unfairness in society um, and the pandemic as one of the greatest stressors and highlighters really of, of just how unequal many um, places Mm. are. Yeah. So I was thinking back to my, my days as a a psychiatry uh, SHO actually, and you know, on the inpatient psychiatric wards, often you know, de- de-escalation is is a everyday um, skill, isn't it? It's a core skill for for working on those wards. Um, so I found uh, two experts in this who who run simulation courses on de-escalation, and uh, and of course have a huge amount of experience on it. And I had a chat with them about about what to do when you've got that patient in front of you who's um, you can see is is angry or getting agitated. Uh, and they gave some really, really useful uh, advice on that. So useful, actually, and and, and in such detail that we're not going to include it here. <laughs> uh, if people want to listen to that, which they should, because it, it was very, very helpful, um, they can subscribe to our channel if they're not already, and uh, we'll we'll put that out on a on a um, a long breath episode, uh, so you can hear that in detail. They also talked about, uh, which is what we are going to hear now. Uh, some of the things you can do even before that point, so things within your practice, uh, the environment, I won't give too much away, uh, but there's some really uh, other really useful pointers uh, coming up um, from Marcella and link in our show notes to their webpage so you can uh, find out more about those uh, courses and um, and the model. And the model is called Calm, Relate, Manage. Uh, and yeah, we're going to quite quite good depth about that and some some really nice Sort of memorable way of, of thinking about how to, to manage those situations. So hi, my name's Marcella. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I've just started on a psychiatric intensive care unit in my clinical role, uh, which means for two and a half days a week, I actually work with the most agitated patients on um, the Springfield University Hospital site. So I spend most of my time de-escalating very unwell patients. So my name is Anita Bignall. I'm a lead simulation nurse tutor with Mosley Learning. Um, I do that full time. I've been doing that for about three years. And previous to working with Mosley Learning, I was a mental health nurse in uh, South London and Mosley for 
almost 20 years working in acute inpatients and then obviously previously ran pubs so did lots of de-escalation there without having had formal training so, so. You've, you've both been de-escalating on a, on a daily basis for a number of years yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and does it does it actually work i mean that's probably where i want to start i i i would say absolutely most of the time and and i think anita will has spoken to or will speak to how but very occasionally nothing you can do will make a difference but most of the time um de-escalation works if you think about your own situations uh, and where you've been distraught or angry most of the time what you want to hear is somebody paying attention caring listening to you apologizing for anything that has gone wrong and, and looking forward, offering a solution and promising that things won't happen the same way again. That's mostly what all of us need. Um, and if we're, we're so, so yes, Nita? Yeah, I, I would agree, Marcy. So really, you know, by the time someone has become angry in a healthcare setting, they've often convinced themselves that the, the people in that setting don't care about them. And actually giving that person a space to vent and to talk things through and to demonstrate that you're there to help them really helps to restore that faith in healthcare staff and in the staff in that setting. So giving them that space just allows them to feel that they've been listened to and that we do actually care, despite all the things that have happened in the run up to them becoming quite angry. And we're Definitely. talking, of course, from a GP point of view today. It's so a, a GP podcast. Okay. And are you seeing that then? In are you, are you seeing signs of that? I get more requests from from primary care. And I know you run a course for for GP staff, don't you? I'd say when I first started with simulation, um, which was, was maybe three four years ago now, that barely any of our courses were actually de-escalation focused. And towards the end of that eighteen month period we were running almost back-to-back -back <laughs> de-escalation courses and, and the mm. majority of those at that time were yeah. either primary care or, or medical, right. acute medical trust. So if we can come on to some practical tips, I know, I know we can't go through everything that a GP practice can implement and I'm sure there's there's a lot of different things to go through, but can, can you offer some, um, you know, where do you begin with this and if you're mm -hmm. a, a GP practice or partner and you you, you think there's mm -hmm. a problem as there is at most practices at the moment yeah yeah so I think the first thing that I would say and, and I need to do correct because you are yeah. the, the most up to date with this one thing that just off the back of what you've said there's the environment and thinking yeah. about the environment um and how that can be adapted um to to better prevent the key is to prevent where possible and uh, to be proactive about preventing any agitation or um, aggression or outbursts in the first place. Lots of things we can anticipate, waiting times, um, crowded areas, um, appointments being delayed, um, people being, the things that anger us are the things that anger most people. So bad news, grief, pain, illness, and anticipating how how that might impact on someone and, and being proactive about trying to reduce that as much as possible so um i think in a gp surgery you, you have some um practices which are very much like you know screens everywhere and it feels a bit like going to a police station or something is is, is that a yeah. good environment or is that i've often wondered if that actually maybe creates a sense of um you know expecting trouble um I, I don't know what the evidence base no, is, but I, I certainly know emotionally speaking uh, how that how that makes me feel when I when I go to a GP practice and there are screens everywhere. I suppose staff safety is paramount. There's always a balance between mm. um, keeping staff safe and, and preventing uh, and, and allowing for a nice environment. But it, it can. There's a whole um, evidence based practice on on the, the color schemes you can use uh, down to what color schemes are best what type of furnishing i mean there are catalog for, for our PICUs, our psychiatric intensive care units there are entire catalogs and, and architects and so on that are specifically skilled in designing a place to try and minimize um people's mm. agitation so, so what color um, can you can you tell us a color that, that i believe good? it's a green it's nearly green. always a green um yeah. yeah it's just not that sickly olive nausea vomit green that you often get in, in, <laughs> in, in hospital corridors but kind of um I, I do believe it's green um but just 
I guess um, making an environment more appealing. Mm. For, for me, so I think we need to. I, I think we need to be very clear that there are angry members of the public and there are angry people with mental health problems, and they've got two very different needs. But actually, there's some key things. So if you know someone has a mental health need, um, does have a history, all of those conditions can make it very difficult for someone to tolerate waiting times, but it can also make it very difficult for them to interact on the phone, to make phone calls and to attend to their health um, in a timely fashion. So they may allow themselves to be in pain for days before they can pick up the phone and try and make an appointment. So you might be meeting people who are much more unwell before they've even tried to make an appointment. Um, they're, they're like likely to find telephone waits and you know when we're put on hold I find it difficult for my children if I'm on hold for 30 minutes so it might be that we think about reviewing the way appointments are booked and that might need some um a step back really from those kind of flare points and thinking about how are our systems creating these issues so thinking about our policies and procedures and how we address those and prevent that happening so that then uh, individual admin staff receptionists and clinicians aren't having to deal with that as it flares up at that point mm -hmm. then thinking about are we running our clinics on time so are you know and if if we're consistently not running on time then there's no point in us saying we're going to run the things at these times. You know, we need we need to be quite sensible and logical. And I know that's really difficult in GP land. But if we're consistently running half an hour behind, are we setting ourselves up to fail? And are we setting ourselves up for people to get angry? Because any normal person is going to get angry if if they're tired, in pain, hungry, whatever it is, and then they're left waiting for half an hour or an hour. That's just a natural human response to that situation. So kind of trying to set up things, but also being aware of your patient records, having alerts if someone has got a history of violence, if they do have a criminal record and, and a, a record of violence anywhere, there should be an alert on the system. Everyone should know. And actually, it might be that we have to say, you know, we're going to prioritise seeing this person as soon as they come in so that they're just not in the surgery for very long. And if they're likely to be someone who's going to be arguing with us and trying to um, seek meds, we need to have a really clear management plan about how we're going to approach that person. And can we see that person in pairs? So bringing a HCA or maybe um, one of the practice nurses in to do the joint appointment with you so that you feel a bit safer. So there's lots of kind of tactics and approaches you can take to manage that because in mental health services, if someone has a significant history of violence, we would see that person in pairs. We would never see them on our own in a room that someone else may not hear any kind of shouting or noise from. So we need to just make sure that we're keeping our environment safe for ourselves. And if the person needs to be seen in pairs, then we might have to do that just so that we get them seen mm. and we maintain our safety. Yes, obviously there are difficulties yeah. on a practical yeah. basis yeah. For, for GP practitioners and, and other people yeah. in the GP surgery to be able to do that yeah. in terms of resources. But, um, you know, what we used to say to each other on the ward was we need to do things safely even if it takes longer because it's better for us to take longer and do something safely now than to have someone off sick for a week for whatever reason yeah. so sometimes it's investing a bit of time now to save time later if yeah. that makes sense so where can people go to, to get some more information and, and resources about all this um, so, uh, well, we use the Camera Lake Manage model. We find it's very kind of quick and easy for people to remember. Um, and we've published that in various places and we've been teaching that for many years. Um, there's also the Reducing Restraint Network, which is a really good go-to. Um, there's a really good website for that. Um, and uh, we also teach huge amounts of reducing restrictive practices and have teach that in have taught that in many settings over the years so we're not just um doing this on a kind of psychiatric focus it's actually we're teaching it in acute trusts and we have taught it in primary care settings and to admin and reception staff and that's always gotten us really good feedback so Anyway, going back to, to what we just heard, uh, they talked a lot about the environment, which I wouldn't have really thought of, I think, before speaking to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that surprised me a little bit. You know, what I have kind of been taught with respect to the environment was things like, um, and I think they allude to this, but like panic buttons or making sure to position 
yourself in the room closest to the door mm. so that the patient isn't between you and the door, which I have never successfully achieved in an exam room ever. Um, so not very yeah. useful, but, um, but thinking about ways that the physical space can a priori change the tone of the consultation, I think is really smart. Yeah. Yeah. They did talk about the, the chair positioning and, um, yeah, I did think, oh gosh, that's complicated because you need to be close to the door. But also they said, don't, don't block the patient as they come out. So leave a, leave a route for them to get out as well as you being closer to the door. So I'm not quite sure. Maybe you need two doors. Maybe that's the answer. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and the colour schemes. I mean, it's things like that, isn't it? I think it, we, a lot of practices actually don't have any control over their colour schemes or their, their um, even what they can put on the walls. So it, in, in the more modern um I think um healthcare centers but all these things make do make a difference don't they yeah yeah I mean I think that I think that's an interesting um an interesting suggestion as you say not many people will be able to necessarily control that unless you're you're in in the process of kind of creating your own practice or thinking about doing that in the future um one thing I have seen done is just kind of to change the lighting in a space so instead of the kind of dare I say, clinical fluorescent Mm. lighting, Um, you know, just doing things like adding light softeners or even putting paper over those fluorescent light screens just to kind of make it a little bit softer. Maybe, maybe that could help. Yeah. The practice I used to work in, I think was brilliant in in terms of all that. We had, um, we had this amazing garden, which you could see very clearly. It was all very open from the waiting Mm. area. And um, there were paintings on the walls at local residents had painted of the local area and it was all very open and spacious and uh, welcoming mm-hmm. and and actually I don't know I, I, obviously I can't scientifically prove this but we all felt that that made a difference to how the patients felt coming into the appointment and particularly if they've been out in the garden so sort of looking at the, the the flowers and things yeah and then they talked a bit there about tactics too didn't they and and I suppose that goes into the you know, having those alerts on, on the screen, which I think can sometimes kind of mm. be a bit like, oh gosh, who's this patient I haven't met before? But it's important to know yeah. before you see a patient if there's something like that. Totally. Um, I thought I thought their points about kind of um, running on time and setting ourselves up to fail. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think about running on time a lot recently and struggle and you you're all you you are starting behind the ball if you are you know in terms of your ability to build a relationship and maintain that kind of openness and listening attitude if you're pressed for time and um i also really appreciated their point about having a very clearly laid out plan um that includes seeing people in pairs mm. um that's something that i'm not sure i've necessarily heard before and you know, you can think of instances where individuals in a practice have a bad experience with a particular patient. And what is really easy to happen is for that to kind of go like dominoes where one person has a bad experience, so they don't see them again. Another person has a bad experience, so they don't see them again. Another person. And sequentially, those relationships end until perhaps there's one person left. But actually, if pairs had been designated to see that person from the beginning, maybe there is a a life raft there in terms of preserving some kind of therapeutic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's a bit like chaperones, isn't it? It's um, depends on how your system's set up, isn't it? It can be, Hmm. you know, we should just do it. You know, obviously I do offer, I do offer a chaperone everybody, Uh, but uh, (laughs) uh, you know, you're taking somebody out from what they're doing and, um, you know, it's difficult, but it's important. And, and taking time to do these things is is does pay off in the end, doesn't mm. it? Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting that about the, the patient feeling abandoned, like there's nobody in the room that or building that actually wants to help them by the you know that first point that you you see mm. them. Um, and that was covered a bit more in the, the the rest of the conversation, which people can subscribe to to listen. Um, and Marcy made a great analogy with uh, you know when you've had a bad day and you just you want to go home and vent. And your spouse or whoever you're talking to uh, straight away starts to try and fix all the problems. Well, why didn't you do this? Or you should do that. And and actually, the, the, all you really want is for them to listen, let you vent, and one hundred percent. And I, 
I think that well, she made that as an analogy to to, to our patients, and that that's the first part of their their model for de-escalation is is this calm phase mm. and don't offer solutions <laughs> straight away. I think that's. I honestly think that's so important, though. Um, I think sometimes we position ourselves or feel that patients position us as fixers, and actually. A lot of patients know that we mm-hmm. won't be able to solve their problems, don't want us to solve their problems. And and I I just completely agree that kind of hearing somebody and just really spending the time to make sure they feel heard and reflecting back that you understand and that it's understandable that they would be angry, um, I think can go a really long way. That's right. And um Hey, we could do it, and that's how we could end today's episode. When we thank you for for hearing us, hearing us vent for the last forty five minutes. Uh, but I think that is where we need to leave it today. Uh, it's been a really interesting uh, chat. Thanks, thanks, Jenny, and. Uh, Thanks to um, Gareth as well, who's disappeared. He's he's starting a new investigation, sending some um, FOI requests as we speak. Uh, <laughs> and thanks to Adam, Marcella and Anita uh, for their um, contributions as well. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Uh, please uh, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, leave us a review uh, or get in touch. Uh, our email address is practice at bmj.com. Uh, we're actually, a couple of us are going to the RCGP conference in, in a couple of weeks' time. So uh, do come to the BMJ stand and, and say hello if, if you're there. Um, Jenny sadly won't, won't be joining us from, from New Zealand, maybe next year. Maybe next yeah. year. <laughs> so yeah, uh, thanks Jenny. See you next time. Thanks Tom. Bye for now. Yeah, see you in a couple of weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>